This episode is brought to you by Next Level Gaming, located in Salem, Oregon. Take your gaming experience to the next level with their stellar inventory of Magic the Gathering singles, Warhammer 40k miniatures, and overall great customer service. Next Level Gaming. Take your gaming to the next level. And this is Jeff. Welcome on into another episode of the Triart Academy podcast, where it's, it's always better to get good rather than get wrecked. In this episode, we will be continuing on where we left off, which is with the stacks archetype. Now, this archetype, as you'll recall from our episode with Rurikdar Stacks, is all about forcing everyone to sack, tap, and tax their resources while using certain bridge pieces to help you bridge the gap between where you are and where you want to be while leaving everyone else in the dust. But in this episode, people, we're going to take it a step further from Rorik Thar. In fact, we're going to present you, in many ways, what's considered the upgrade from Rorik Thar. While Rorik Thar is a great deck in its own right, sure. mind you, this deck happened to involve two more colors that provides us with more answers more stacks pieces, and in some ways, even greater flexibility than Rorik Thar himself could even provide. Yep. And this deck is a mid-range combo deck that could perform not only the mid-range combo plan very well, it could even perform the temporal aggro game clean into the late game for closing out games with creature beats. That's right, people. This deck wins through beaten with creatures. Yep, this stacks combo hybrid deck is so, so beautiful that it catches people with their pants down more often than you think. You know, if you ever wanted to beat face in competitive EDH, look no further than Blood Pod. We went there and we were gone and we're in harmony. So, what is Blood Pod here, people? Because this deck is spicy, we're beaten with creatures, but why Blood Pod? So, the name Blood Pod gets its name from two different namesake cards that, on the surface, have nothing to do with each other, but when combined, form a powerful attrition engine that can either go for the combo win, or like you mentioned, can also pivot on a dime and play the late game beatdown through all conventional means. And the best part is, it doesn't even need the namesake cards in order to trash a table. Do you know that? Exactly. Speaking of which, let's talk about the commanders of this deck. Because one of the best parts about Blood Pod is we get to play with two partners. That's right, people. We get to play with two different commanders here. Mm. And both of them are spicy as they ever come for this archetype. Yes, they are. This means we will be making use of the partner mechanic from Commander 16 in order to get the most out of the color pie. In this case, we're talking about Timna the Weaver and Tana the Blood Sower. Speaking of which, let's kick it all off with the main girl in charge. Yes, sir. Timna. 2-2, 3-CMC. may not seem all that impressive. Lifelink for a little better stat. Alrighty. Sure. But here's where she gets hecky, all gorgeous. Number one. At the beginning of your post-combat main phase, pay X life and draw X cards where X is the number of a player's dealt combat damage in the last combat in the combat phase. She sounds basically like a one-sided Edric. 
Exactly. In Orzhov colors, nonetheless. Yes, sir. Now, what about Tana, though? Tana, on the other hand, though, is a four-drop, world-colored commander that's a 2-2 that states whenever she deals combat damage to a player, generate that many 1-1 green sapling creature tokens. Which, for the most part, she doesn't seem all that impressive on the stat side anyway. But at the same token, though, she is very useful. In fact, did you know in older versions of Blood Pod, they used to run contamination with her? Yeah, people. Look at the black, look at the black blood moon if you ever saw it. I love that card. I've used it in a couple of different <laughs> black variant decks. So here's how it all comes together. As we stated, this deck plays stacks pieces mainly in the form of hate bears. We're talking about hate bears such as Eidolon of Rhetoric, Ether Sworn Canonist, and Magus of the Moon. And what this basically means is that in addition to slowing the progress of our opponents, we're going to be using these little guys to do some heavy lifting for us by getting into the red zone with Timna on the field. This allows us to draw extra cards in order to keep the gravy train going. Oh yeah, and speaking of which here, right, this is actually one major upgrade over Roar Thar, who in his own defense only uses dorks and hate bears only as a way just to slow your opponent down. This case, though, we're actually drawing cards off of these guys. Yeah, buddy. So you're probably wondering, what are some of the pros and cons of this kind of an archetype? Well, let's start off first with the cons as they're easier to pinpoint. There are three big downfalls that do need to be addressed. First, as we said, this deck uses hate bears. And what that means is that a well-timed wrath or two can set you back significantly. Wrath effects like Toxic Deluge and Fire Covenant can really put a hamper on our plans if our creatures, especially Timna, get wiped off the board. Timna is especially problematic because she is how we accumulate card advantage in this deck. No Timna, no extra cards. And for us, that's bad because other decks will be using speed to their utmost advantage in order to execute their game-winning strategies. The second issue with this deck list is that with cards that hinder Timna in any way, shape, or form, such as cards such as Static Orb, Stasis, Spirit of Labyrinth, these types of cards not only hose our generation of card advantage, but it also holds our board in many other aspects, such as our mana dwarfs that we have to tap and swing with to get damage in, in the yeah. red zone. And that is something we cannot afford whatsoever. In fact, Static Orb is actually one of our main cards that we put under our kill watch at all times. Yeah. Not to mention cards such as Taurus Totem, for instance, which could even shut off our activated abilities on some of these dudes, which quite a fair number of these creatures have activated abilities we really want to play with. You're right to bring that up. You know, we like to untap and punch our enemies, and cards like Static Orb, Spirit of the Labyrinth, and even Stasis make life very painful for us. Oh, they do. Not just because we don't get to untap our stuff, but like you mentioned, uh, it makes Timna practically useless. And as far as the other two cards, they're pretty well self-explanatory. Exactly. No, Sp Spirit of the Labyrinth is especially heinous for us because that restricts our card draw. Which is the reason why you don't see it rarely. <laughs> yeah, except in very rare instances, right? Yeah. Now, the third and most insidious problem against this archetype is that in order to pilot this deck effectively... You have to have a strong knowledge of the matchup that you're in based on who you're sitting at the table with. And so what that means is three specific things. Number one, 
The correct play sequence on any given turn can be especially complicated since you not only have to know what your opponents are playing, both inside and out, but you also have to plan multiple turns ahead in order to anticipate their maneuvers against your stacks and hate bear pieces. Number two, the formulation of your strategy has to take into consideration where you are in the turn order, and that means that you may not have the time to proactively respond before something nasty happens, such as in the case with Flash Hulk decks, for example. Number three, your mulligan decisions have to be based on who you are up against, and if you misjudge the archetypes you are playing against, you could very well mulligan yourself out of the match before even the game begins. With this deck, mulligan decisions become ever so vital. If you're up against a fast storm deck, for example, you have to be willing to mulligan to an otherwise good from an otherwise good hand in order to mulligan into a hate piece like a rule of law or a null rod in order to keep yourself in the game. Remember, your ultimate goal as a stacks pilot is to make it into the late game where you can dominate. You cannot race fast combo decks. Don't even try to do that. And more importantly, you cannot out attrition a mid-range deck without a way to mitigate your losses along the way. And especially with this type of archetype, which most people, I, I've seen enough play of going on with this archetype in general, most people forget the emphasis on proactive cards. Stacks pieces are proactive cards. You've got to play them before stuff happens. It's basically control through proactive means. Which is hilarious. <laughs> Control through attrition. Exactly. And this type of deck does not play well on the normal axis as some of the other decks you see running around. Yeah, not two, no two stacks decks are ever the same. Exactly. Now that we've actually gotten some of the glaring issues out of the way, let's actually talk about the real reasons why this deck is so good. Yeah, let's talk about the pros of this deck. You know, in addition to its hate bear suite, which is plentiful in its own right... This deck runs an armada of all-purpose hate and stacks pieces ranging from Null Rod and Stony Silence to Blood Moon and Magus of the Moon to Eidolon of Rhetoric and Rule of Law along with a heavy helping of taxation effects like Trinisphere, the original Thalia, and Sphere of Resistance. Yeah, no, I remember when, uh, you, do you love your three balls? I love three ball. It's great, especially in Vintage. Exactly. <laughs> If you've never played Vintage Shops, it's a treat. You know, not only can this deck lock the board early, but it can also play the hard stacks game without any issue at all. Along that same line, this deck also runs a high density of stacks-oriented threats, which ultimately will, more often than not, force your opponents to run out of early accessible answers before they get their footing. And this right here plays right into our game plan of attrition nicely. Best of all, however, is the fact that this deck is malleable, adaptable, and adjustable based on the environment you are in, and that you can tune your stacks deck and hate speak to whatever, whatever your meta calls for, which is, believe it or not, one of the pros to stacks archetype in general. Right, but in this deck especially, it's especially pronounced because for this particular situation, this deck, that kind of a feature allows you to formulate your stacks game towards whatever the meta actually calls for. So, for example, if you're running into a lot of ad nauseum decks, you can slot in Gaddic Teague if you really want to and just call it a day. Yeah, or other options. Very <laughs> much so. 
was it Matt? Was it cruel mentor? Uh, harsh mentor. Harsh actually. mentor. There we go. Yeah, you know, like we were talking about with some of our other deck techs, many CDH decks are built in such a manner that they are geared towards one or two specific end goals, whereas this deck archetype is not boxed in. In fact, if you need more reactive answers, no problem. You need certain proactive hate pieces like Gaddick Teague, no problem there either. You're not allowed to play infinite combos where you're at? Who cares? This deck does not give two squirts a monkey piss. Yep. Go ahead and swap out the infinite combo lines and play more hate bears and finishers like Grave Titan or Inferno Titan. You could run those in the deck like this. Oh, yeah, old gro- good old Gravy Train and Inferno Train. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's, oh, man. But it's like, we're like Billy Mays here. But, but wait, wait, there's more! more. <laughs> you know, with proper building skills and meta knowledge, you can also build this deck in a very budget-friendly manner compared to especially other archetypes in Competitive Commander. You know, did you know that this deck actually runs on its top end for about seventeen dollars to $1,800 fully built? I wouldn't doubt it. You know, did you also know that you can actually build this deck for as little as about 700 and still have it fully operate the way it's supposed to? Exactly, people. Besides, there are so many options we get to play with in these four colors as hate pieces are concerned and restrictions that we can build into. Because one of the big cards we do play is is called a card called Blood Moon. And this beautiful little red enchantment just hoses tables. I love that card. Yeah, no, I've seen it played in Modern especially and to a much, much lesser degree in Legacy. But the deck does, the card itself does work. My God, you know, this deck is hilarious as hell. This deck slices, it dices, it juliennes fries, it makes a mean margarita. I wouldn't be surprised if you paid it 20 bucks and it'll watch your kids. Yeah, this deck is the variable Swiss army knife of CDH. All about the half of a time twister from Unlimited, baby. All for the price of half of a time twister. That is so, so nutty. I know, right? Don't you love how expensive some of these RL cards are getting? Don't remind me. My wallet <laughs> hates you for that comment. <laughs> but before we get any further than what we've already talked about, let's look at the first four turns. What is our game plan? Competitive commander matches are typically defined by its turn four relevancy proposition. What that means simply is that by turn four, you're either relevant or you're dead. The way we become relevant by turn four is to establish a relevant board lock by this point in the game. And in that vein, our first primary objective is to play out hate pieces, which will slow down the fastest decks first. This is where knowledge of your matchup comes in. For example, you if you suspect an opponent is a Storm Variant deck, finding and resolving a Rule Law or a Null Rod will be necessary as both these cards will A, both slow them down, and B, completely hose them. In, some, the same, cases, in yeah. some cases. And if you're feeling that you might be going against a Protein Hulk deck lurking around, finding and resolving a Graph Digger's Cage or Containment Priest is literally the best route you can go about to make sure that deck, the only thing it'll be doing over there is just sitting over there twiddling its thumbs. Exactly. In either case, we want to get past turn four, where our chances of survival improve dramatically as time goes on. But in order to do that, we also must make certain mulligan decisions based in part on where we are at in the turn order and who we are up against. To do that, we ask ourselves two important questions when looking at our opening hand. Number one, how quickly can we establish a strong board presence relative to the table? And number two, 
how likely are we able to get our stacks pieces as well as our subsequent draw engine online based on who is sitting with us? If the answer is fuzzy, or you're not certain you'll be able to secure your position by turn three, chances are you should ship the hand back, back to your deck, reshuffle, and get a new hand. Because I can tell you right now, if you are questioning your hand to do anything on the board, you should always get a new hand. Yep. You know, especially by turn three, because that's typically where you want to be at. You want to be about a turn ahead of the pack. So, bearing that in mind, if you're not certain you're able to secure your position by about turn three, chances are you should probably ship the hand back. Ideally, we want to start each game with about two to three lands, one to two pieces of mana acceleration, and two to three relevant pieces of interaction, stacks, or a mix of both based on where you're sitting. So, with all that being said... Let's talk about closing out the game. Our third and final objective is to move to our end goal, which is one of a few things. One, move toward a handlock situation involving Sire of Insanity while beating down with creatures like Sun Titan and Elishnor Grand Cenobite. To augment this plan, we also have Tender Shoot Dryad to help do extra work for us by making Sapperling tokens ever more relevant. Number two, we also want to consider moving towards our Kiki Infinite combo lines through any number of means provided in this deck. To that end, we have Birthing Pod and Yisan the Wanderer Bard, as well as Survival of the Fittest as a backup. For our Kiki Jiki targets, we typically have Felidar Guardian and Village Bellringer as our backup. Finally, we also have access to cards like Buried Alive and Reanimate, which will allow us to dump Kiki and the combo itself into our yard for quick reanimation. And with this method of approach, remember, the name of the game is Redundancy. So now that we have been talked about some of the other ways we get around, let's actually talk about these Kiki combo lines which we have, which I'm going to say it right now, Redundancy is one of the things that every CDH deck should always have to victory. I agree. Let's first start off with the Buried Alive route. So, Buried Alive, when paired with a reanimation spell such as Animate Dead or Reanimate, can serve as a legitimate path to victory. In this case, what we will do is we will use Buried Alive, finding Kiki Jiki, Village Bell Ringer, and Karmic Guide. The reanimation spell will target Karmic Guide. Karmic Guide will then reanimate Kiki. From here, Kiki will copy Karmic Guide, and then the Karmic Guide token will reanimate Village Bellringer. This will untap all of your creatures. Finally, from here, use Kiki to copy Village Bellringer for the kill. Survival of the Fittest, number two on this whole list, one of my favorite enchantments personally. Yep. It's very similar to the Buried Alive route. In this case, though, however, though, we need a creature in hand first yep. to kick this all off. What we do first, we pitch this creature, we either find either Kiki. We find Village Bellringer. The matter doesn't really matter at this point. Yeah. All we're doing is that we're pitching these two cards eventually, find, chain them into each other, and eventually the last card we find off of this chain is Karmic Guide. Karmic Guide here is this very ultra cool creature because what he does is that what we do is on our turn, we cast Karmic Guide, play it, reanimate Kiki, tap Kiki, create a copy of Karmic Guide, reanimate the Bellringer. Proceed to go ham on the table. Agreed. The next route we can take is with Yisan the Wanderer Bard, 
which is a pseudopod. Starting with just two verse counters, this card can pseudopod its way to victory by the following path. We verse into a three drop, which in this case will be Village Bellringer, and then Bellringer will untap Yisan. We then verse into a four drop, which in this case will be Felidar Guardian. Felidar Guardian will then blink Village Bellringer. When Bellringer re-enters, Bellringer will untap Yisan. Finally, we will first into a 5-drop, which will be Kiki-Jiki. We then can proceed, as above, as we said before, to the combo kill. As for a 2-drop, you typically want to find Bloom Tender where possible, because Bloom Tender by itself will create typically 2 to 3 colors, and that should not cause us too much issue. You know, I don't know why, but you have this whole dedicated thing to Bloom Tender. Well, what do you expect? I mean, they haven't reprinted Bloom Tender. I'm kind of irritated about that. <laughs> Speaking of cards that they'll probably never reprint again, Birthing Pod here. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about <laughs> those Birthing, birthing Pod, pod lines. Which, yeah, no. Birthing Pod here is actually hilarious because this card, quite frankly, even though we're talking about it on the combo turn, this card literally is a utility all-star. All oh, yeah. Let me jump in on that one. You know, starting from six mana and eight life with a three drop already on the field, did you know we can actually pot our way oh, to victory? Yeah, no. Hell, we can even use our commanders as pod targets. That's exactly how we're going to do it. <laughs> we, we can have Timna on the field with pod, six mana, and eight life, and we can go ham from there. In fact, here's how you do it. We're going to first start off by paying three mana and two life for that pod. We're then going to pod away our three drop. In this case, we'll say Timna. We'll pay one mana and two life, and we'll pod into Felidar Guardian, which is a four drop. Guardian will then blink pod. Pod... We'll then go ahead and pot away Guardian for Karmic Guide, paying another mana and two life, which is a five drop. Here, Karmic Guide is going to reanimate Felidar Guardian. We will then have Guardian blink pod for a second time. Then, we pot away Guardian, paying one more mana and two life, for Kiki Jiki. We then have Kiki Jiki copy Karmic Guide and have Karmic Guide reanimate Felidar Guardian. We're going to have the token itself reanimate Felidar Guardian more explicitly. This time, when it enters, we're going to have Felidar Guardian blink Kiki-Jiki. Kiki re-enters, this time untapped. From here, we will have Kiki infinitely copy Felidar Guardian, which each other token copy blinking Kiki-Jiki. That just sounds nasty in its own right. You remember Kiki combo in Standard? <laughs> We're going to be doing our own version of copycat here. Exactly. Now that we have kind of concluded up with the combo lines here, let's finally start going into the final conclusion because this is an archetype that is very hard to explain for the most part, exactly, because the fact is that this deck is based on the meta you play at. Sure. You know, there's a couple final thoughts I think we should touch on. The first of which is that, on average, this deck is slower than most, in part because the archetype often carries along with it a fairly sizable amount of interaction, uh, both of which is proactive and reactive in nature. And for that reason, you must be able to, and be willing to, play the long game in order to be able to succeed with this archetype. The second point that I also want to touch on, and I'm sure Cole will agree with me here, is that the deck tech provided here is meant to provide a rough sketch and skeleton of the archetype. Remember how we were talking about earlier, Cole, that no two uh, stacks decks are the same? Exactly. Yeah, in this case, no two blood pod decks function the same way because 
even though they may contain similar cards, it also, like you said, is based on the meta. And this is because stacks decks should be tuned to the meta that they exist in. So, for example, some blood, blood pot lists may contain Blood Moon and others might contain Choke, depending on how many one and two color blue decks especially are in the meta, especially if any of them are blue in nature. Likewise, some Blood Pod decks might also run Carpet of Flowers, whereas some might prefer the old school route and instead use Contamination in conjunction with token producers in order to maintain that Blood Moon style lockout, assuming that the meta is slow enough to where that can be afforded. It's also of interest to note that some Blood Pod decks don't run the Kiki Combo package and as such have swapped them out for more pieces of removal, tutoring, hate, stacks, and so forth in order to make up for this absence. And finally, remember that not all stacks cards are created equal. Yep. Some are more equal than others. And likewise, some are more detrimental to our game plan than others. Static one for static orb. I don't know how many people I've seen play static orb. That makes me sick. It's like for this archetype, you can't play static orb. It hoses your deck. Smoke, for instance, hoses this deck. Yep. Curse Totem hoses, hoses this deck. deck. Spirit of the Labyrinth hoses, hoses this, this deck. deck. That's the one of the big things that you got to remember when you're building this archetype up. Remember that this type of deck archetype requires you to draw cards. And Notion Thief, Alms Collector, and some others will literally hose this whole archetype out. Yep. Timna is our primary source of card advantage in this whole deck. And it's important to remember this when crafting your own version of Blood Pod so that you don't hamstring your own efforts, especially in the middle of the game. Because the last thing we want to do is drop a hate piece we can't work around. That's right. We were, uh, originally talking about bridge pieces, for example. Sometimes uh, stacks decks are built in such a manner to where they don't need those bridge pieces because the deck is built in such a way that it is not hamstringed by those stacks pieces. And Curse Totem, as good of a stacks piece as it is, will hamstring this deck pretty badly. Oh, exactly. So, with all that said... That's all the time that we have for this episode of the Triart Academy podcast. We'll be posting a link to the primary Blood Pod primer as developed by the Laboratory Maniacs, as well as my own version of Blood Pod, so that way you can see the similarities and the differences between the two. We hope that you found this deck tech insightful, and most importantly, informative. And as always, it's, it's always, always better to get good rather than get wrecked. wrecked.